murdered a podcast we're covering part six of the john benet ramsey case that would be the 1996 case that captivated the entire nation and has still yet to be solved last week we talked about burke ramsey and some of the earlier interviews that he did with child psychologist and then we talked about some of the shady goings on of the da alex hunter who also took the ramseys through an entire grand jury trial only to not indict them on any charges It was a whole thing. So, as always, if you haven't already, then I would highly, highly, highly suggest that you go back and listen to the first five parts of this case, or else this episode may not make a whole lot of sense to you. And I'm not even going to attempt to tell you what we're going to cover this week, because at this point in this case, there's no telling how far I'll get before, you know, we're out of time. (laughs) So, before I say let's get it, I did want to give a shout out to the new patrons on Patreon. Because I know I always forget to do that, so I'm just going to shout everybody out. Because I don't remember which ones I've done and which ones I haven't. (laughs) So, I want to say the biggest thank yous in the world to the $10 a month. We're here for the free shit tier. So, thank you to Justin, Lacey, Megan, and Sherry. And another huge round of thank yous for the $3 a month. We broke but we love it here tier. So, thank you to Angel, April, Michelle, and Preston. If you want to join Patreon, you can by using the link under the description of any episode. But, just know that I am the absolute worst podcaster about remembering that I even have a Patreon account. I'm working on doing better and making sure to put out content, but I am a flawed human. So, with all of that out of the way, and without further ado, let's get it. So, I watched the CBS docuseries called The Case of John JonBenet Ramsey years ago. But my memory is about as good as the memory of a goldfish, so I had to buy it on Amazon Prime in order to rewatch it so that we could talk about it during this series. And I've been waiting to get to this part where we get to the CBS series and the Dr. Phil interview with Burke. So during this CBS special called The Case of John Benet Ramsey, a group of specialists and experts got together to re-examine the case to see what they could come up with as far as like theories and conclusions go. Now, a few years after the murder, FBI profiler Jim Clemente was brought in as a part of the cold case review on JonBenet's case in 1998, where, for the most part, everyone working on this cold case review kind of collectively agreed that this was your average run-of-the-mill kidnapping, especially since a ransom note was found with an actual ransom demand inside of the house. Now, Jim Clemente was also brought in on this CBS series years later in 2016. 
And if I'm not mistaken, this series actually aired on April 18th of 2016. And this time, Jim Clemente was brought in as a retired FBI profiler. He wanted to take another look at the case to see if he could potentially solve it or at least grow closer to solving it. And there are quite a few other people worth mentioning that were working alongside Jim Clemente on this CBS series. So first off, we have Laura Richards, who is a behavioral analyst, and Dr. Henry Lee, who is a huge name in the true crime community. Dr. Henry Lee is a forensic scientist who's known for working on big-name cases like the O.J. Simpson case, the Scott Peterson case, the Elizabeth Smart case, the Staircase case with Michael Peterson, and so many more. Just lots of big-name cases that are all super well-known in the true crime world. And there were a lot of other well-respected people that give their input throughout this series, and they all work together. But one more that I wanted to mention was Dr. Warner Spitz, who's a forensic pathologist. But damn near everyone who was a part of this series was sued by Burke Ramsey. And during this lawsuit, Burke was seeking a grand total of $750 million. Burke claimed that the network falsely conveyed to millions of viewers that he killed his six-year-old sister, which they did. That's exactly what they did. Now, all of the experts had claimed that Burke had accidentally killed John Bonet. And not surprisingly, Burke won this lawsuit. Well, I mean, kind of. Burke and the producers of the docuseries said that they both came to a quote-unquote amicable resolution of their differences, with Burke being awarded an undisclosed amount of money. Because Lord help, if you've seen this docuseries, then you know CBS did not try to hide the fact that they were pointing their finger directly at Burke Ramsey, who again was only nine years old at the time that JonBenet was murdered. And Burke was just absolutely not having this. This is the reason why anytime anyone mentions this case at all, you will hear more allegedly's and presumably's and in my opinions than in any other case in the world, probably. So during this series, a legit think tank was set up and it was just a huge room where everybody could kind of bounce ideas and thoughts off of one another. And this is also the place where everyone would comb through every piece of evidence again together. Now, this series kind of starts out with everyone sitting around the table at the think tank, and they obviously start with the 911 call. That was the first thing that happened. They listen to it, and they immediately start going through the last few seconds of the 911 call when Patsy presumably thought she'd hung the phone up. But it's really hard for me to say what I think I hear at the end of the 911 call, because if I tell you what I think I hear, then you're more than likely going to hear the same exact words that I just told you. Because you'd basically just be listening to what I just said that I heard. You would have a preconceived idea of what you were expecting to hear, and that's kind of how they did this with the 911 call. And what they came up with is what we've already gone over with the, oh, God, help me, or the what did you do, or what did you find. That's kind of what they found. But one thing that they did talk about that I do agree with is that when they talk about the fact that Patsy did hang up the phone, you would think that 911 would be your lifeline to help. You would think that you would want to stay on the phone with the dispatcher until either the police or investigators get there. Because those are the people that are trained to handle an emergency like this. Now, the team that worked on the CBS series were actually the ones who enhanced the end of the 911 call that we've all Googled by now. 
And even the guy that they have doing the noise reduction on the 911 call can't decide if he allegedly hears Patsy say, what did you do? Or if he thinks she's saying, help me Jesus. Which just kind of furthers my thinking that this is probably more along the lines of junk science. Because, honey, let me tell you, it took them less than 15 minutes into this series that the experts are listening to the 911 call enhanced. And it implies within those 15 minutes that they are already pointing the finger at Burke. No one's saying it out loud, but they definitely imply it to where they don't have to say it. Now, the next thing these experts examine is the ransom note. And one of the guys, I don't, I stopped trying to keep up with most of their names and what they do. It was just a lot of people. But one of the guys says that he never worked a case where a ransom note was found, but also where a ransom note was found and the body was left behind at the house and not taken, which I feel like is a pretty valid point. I also can't think of another case that I know of where someone left behind a ransom note and also the body that they were asking for ransom on all within the same case. Another thing these experts point out is how many lines of the ransom note were actually pulled straight from a movie. The lines of the ransom note that say things like, if we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. Now, there is a line in the movie Dirty Harry, and that line says, if you talk to anyone, even if it's a Pekingese pissing against a lamppost, the girl dies. So that was literally almost a word-for-word line that was pulled straight from the Dirty Harry movie. There was also another line pulled from the movie Speed, and that one was written almost word-for-word in this ransom note. Like, The ransom note was copied verbatim at the very end of the ransom note when it said, don't try to grow a brain, John. That line was pulled straight from the movie Speed. And it is at least worth mentioning that at the Ramsey's house, they had movie posters all over the walls. They had stacks and stacks of movies that they'd bought. So, I mean, it is at least possible if someone in that house were to have wrote a ransom note and maybe they watched a lot of movies That could potentially possibly explain all the movie lines that were pulled and used in the ransom note. Now, some of the things that these experts pointed out as far as whether or not they think this was a male or female that wrote this ransom note are some of the same things that I've already pointed out. The listen closely part, the be well rested part, and the we don't particularly like you part, etc., And they also go over some things that we've already talked about as far as this person speaking English as their first language and their strong, intelligent writing skills, so on and so forth. Now, something else that we've already talked about, but something that was pointed out in this CBS special, is that the group of experts who timed out how long it would take to write this entire ransom note, they just copied it word for word. But in this CBS special, these experts also pointed out how every I in this ransom note is actually dotted. And they pointed out how much extra time that would have taken to dot every single I instead of just trying to write as quickly as possible to get out of the house. So I thought that was interesting just because we already know that it took over 21 minutes or so for this note to be copied. And we've already kind of talked through the fact that you would need like a longer amount of time If you weren't copying the note, you would have to think about what you were going to write. And then for the author of the ransom note to take the time to dot every single I, that seems like it could have taken 30 or 40 minutes worth of time to write all that down and make sure all the I's were dotted. 
So, in my opinion, it probably took way longer than the original 21 minutes or so that we talked about before. But, in my opinion, one thing that was crystal clear in this series from the 15-minute mark on is that this team of experts were coming together to do this show and that they were going to point their finger at someone in the Ramsey house. You can't go in with your own preconceived ideas and thoughts and opinions, especially when you're an investigator. And I feel like that's kind of what they did. Now, they did do a lot of things that had never been done before, like how they recreated the entire Ramsey house and then did a walkthrough with one of the first responding investigators, which that was interesting. Watching them walk through the house that looked identical to the Ramsey house at the time was pretty cool. So after they did this walkthrough of the house, that's when this CBS series takes a turn in the direction of trying to talk to the people that knew the Ramseys at the time of the crime or people that worked for the Ramseys, or even people that live close by. And out of all of those people that the experts reached out to, there were literally only a couple of people who were even willing to speak. And everyone in town was just kind of more so like, we don't really bring up the murder of John Bonet around here. Like, out of sight, out of mind. That's kind of the impression I got from everybody that they reached out to throughout the entire town and the groups of people that knew the Ramseys personally. So after this, the team of experts start talking about the autopsy and they get into that. They're talking to Dr. Warner Spitz, who I mentioned earlier. And Dr. Spitz might just want to stop talking about this case altogether because not only did Burke file a lawsuit against CBS, the production team, and all the experts that participated in this series, but Burke also filed another lawsuit against Dr. Spitz because of some of the shit that he said during a radio interview about this case after the CBS series. I was like, damn, homie, take it easy on your allegations that you're speaking on like they're fact when they're not. (laughs) I just thought it was so crazy that this doctor was sued and then went on to a radio talk show to talk even more shit about shit that he'd already been sued for. But let's continue. So during this time is when all the experts are talking to Dr. Spitz about this case. He starts saying that the skull fracture was probably caused by the big mag light. And, you know, we've already talked about the flashlight. But the one thing that I cannot get past about this flashlight is that there were no fingerprints found on this flashlight whatsoever. Like, none, zip, zilch, zero. None. There were no fingerprints on the flashlight itself or on the batteries inside of the flashlight. So, like... How did the batteries get in the flashlight, and how did the flashlight end up on the kitchen counter when no fingerprints are on it? That part has never added up to me except for gloves, and gloves screams intruder to me. This is why I cannot deal with this case. One piece of evidence, I'm like, it's gotta be an intruder. The next piece, I'm like, it's gotta be somebody that lived in the house. The next thing, I'm like, it's gotta be a stranger. And the next time, I'm like, it's gotta be someone they know. But I guess that's why we're talking about it here. So the next part that they do on this series actually answered one of the questions that I had in the beginning of this case, and I'm pretty sure I voiced it on the podcast. And I was asking about how there wouldn't have been any blood with a head injury. You would think that head injuries would bleed a lot. Typically they do. And Dr. Spitz explains this by saying that skin has a little more give to it than bone does. So he explained how a blow to the head may have broken or fractured the skull itself. 
but it may not have broken the skin to be able to bleed. And I guess that makes sense on some level, but I'm not a doctor. That was just something I was glad to hear an actual doctor answer because I was so curious about that. Now, one thing this CBS series did was they did a really good job going over the evidence, and they did a really good job with the recreation of the Ramsey house, and they even did some testing on how much force it would have taken to cause that skull fracture with a flashlight. And they used the same kind of flashlight that was found on the Ramsey's kitchen counter. But these tests only work if you're taking what evidence you find and matching it to a suspect not just whoever you want to point your finger at. So I guess this series was good to watch for a different perspective, but again, kind of feels more like these experts already knew what they believed happened, and they just agreed to re-examine the case anyways. And they went into this trying to prove what they already believed. But I found a clip of the investigator that was working for the Ramseys, And he was actually able to show how an intruder would have been able to get inside of the Ramsey house through the broken window in the basement. Remember the broken window that John had thought they had fixed, but it turns out it was never fixed. And this investigator had to be in his 60s or 70s when he was showing how easily someone could have gotten inside the Ramsey house. So someone younger with evil intentions could have most definitely gotten in through that window without question. But now let's move on to the interview that Dr. Phil did with Burke Ramsey, and this interview with Dr. Phil was also in 2016. And in this interview, we've already kind of talked a little bit about it in the, earlier in the series, but I wanted to cover all of it, because Dr. Phil asks a lot of good questions, and he's able to ask things that we wouldn't have typically been able to answer, especially with Burke, because he doesn't do interviews. So, first of all, this would have been Burke's very first interview ever. Why in the hell was it Dr. Phil of all people? I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't figure it out. I cannot put my finger on it. And I don't know why. That's just been a weird thing that I've always wondered. I guess that's just something else we'll probably never have a definitive answer to. So, by the time that this interview's done in 2016, Patsy had already passed away. But both John and Burke Ramsey sat down with Dr. Phil to try to clear the air. This was Burke's very first public interview with anyone ever, like I said, since John Bonet's death. And I can't figure out why it's Dr. Phil, but it was probably the best person for this interview with Burke, just because we all know Dr. Phil doesn't hold back, and he says what he wants to say. So, Dr. Phil made sure that when he did this interview with Burke that there were no questions that would be off limits and there was also an agreement made before the interview started where there would be no lawyers involved, which doesn't happen all that often, especially with someone who's so clearly in the spotlight and so clearly looked at in a suspicious light. So, this interview would have been in 2016, which also would have been exactly 20 years after the murder of John Bonet. And in this interview, Burke remembers seeing magazines and tabloids with his pictures on the front cover, or John Bonet's pictures on the front cover, and he's retelling this as a memory from his childhood. And to that I say, could you imagine being 9 or 10 years old, seeing your face plastered across all kinds of magazines with headlines that say, like, Brother Killed, Beauty Pageant Sister? Because that has to be hard to see and then move on from. 
which may explain why Burke's so private even now as an adult. Burke explains that seeing those magazine covers and headlines and tabloids as a kid is the same reason why he's never spoken out publicly before this interview, and also why he won't be speaking out publicly again after this interview with Dr. Phil. And the very first thing that you're going to notice with Burke in this interview, if you go watch it, if you haven't watched it already, because again, I watched this when it first came out in 2016, but I had to rewatch it because my memory is trash. But the one thing that you're going to notice with this interview is that Burke seems to be smirking or possibly even smiling throughout this entire interview. And though this may seem suspicious or off-putting at first glance, Dr. Phil has spoken out about this publicly on his show, saying that Burke was just uncomfortable during this interview and that Burke didn't look or act this way during a normal conversation without the cameras rolling. And this could be something like how I laugh when I'm uncomfortable, even when it's inappropriate, or even how some people may crack inappropriate jokes when they're uncomfortable or uneasy. So this smirk or smile that's on Burke's face throughout this entire interview with Dr. Phil may just be Burke's way of dealing with and coping with the fact that he's uncomfortable or even uneasy talking about something that's uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about. Because spoiler alert, Murder isn't normally something that most people can talk about over dinner and not bat an eye like most of us think, just because we are who we are. Murder does make a lot of people uncomfortable, and Burke may just be one of those people. But with Burke always making headline and news and always being plastered on the cover of a different magazine, and they were all big-name magazines. But this is the same exact reason why he's such a private person as an adult. Burke never let the public know what was going on with him, and he also worked from home before working from home was the norm. He adamantly tries to keep his name and face and life out of the public eye. And honestly, I can't even be mad at that, because I think if I grew up like Burke did with cameras and tabloids always being right in my face all the time, I would probably be just as private as an adult, just like what Burke has chosen to do. Now, Burke talks about the house tours during the interview with Dr. Phil, and this was something that was fairly normal for the Ramsey family to participate in. And what I mean by that is that there were actually a tour, and what I mean by that is that there was actually a tour of the Ramsey's house in 1994, which was just two years before JonBenet was murdered. And these house tours were a yearly thing for a lot of the nicer houses and homes in Boulder. So it wasn't just the Ramsey's house, it would have been all of the really nice, really big, fancy, extravagant houses in that area. These tours were open to the public, and during these house tours, Patsy guessed during a previous statement that there would have been about 1,500 people who would have been in attendance in and out of the Ramsey house during these house tours. And Patsy does talk about it in statements that she had made before she passed away, saying that these home tours could have basically been an open invitation for someone to get to know the layout of the house and to kind of get their feel for their way around the house. And again, these house tours happened before John Bonet was murdered, so there wouldn't really be a way to know if someone was taking the time to scope out the house years before they planned to make their move on John Bonet if John Bonet was the murderer's actual target. And these tours would basically be an invitation to come in and look at these big fancy houses in Boulder, 
So I feel like this is at the very least something to keep in mind that there could have been upwards of 1,500 people every year walking around the Ramsey house to know exactly who slept in what room, where the basement was, where everything goes, like the notepad, the pen, etc. Now, during this interview, Burke remembers that he and John Bonet had both gotten new bikes for Christmas that year and that he had gotten a new train set and that John Bonet had gotten a new dollhouse as part of their Christmas gifts. Dr. Phil asked Burke if he remembered hearing anything out of the usual on the night of the murder, and Burke says that he doesn't remember hearing anything. No noises, no commotion, no screaming, just nothing. And there was something else that Dr. Field pointed out to John Ramsey that I had actually asked about in an earlier episode on this case. If John read the ransom note and the ransom note said not to call the police and not to talk to anyone, and if the note also said that the kidnappers have somebody watching every move that the Ramseys make, then why would they call the police and not tell them to not show up in a patrol car? Because All of the cars that showed up were very clearly marked with police patrol car labels. And John says that at that point that the police didn't know what the ransom note said. So he says he doesn't fault them for not showing up in unmarked cars. But I feel like that's probably something you should mention to the police on the 911 call. Like, hey, by the way, maybe y'all should show up in unmarked cars so that these kidnappers don't see you come and kill my daughter. But that's not what happened. And finally, Dr. Phil brings up whether or not Burke was awake or asleep during this whole thing. And Burke says that he was woken up by Patsy, who came into his room when it was still dark outside. So presumably it was pretty early in the morning if it was still dark outside. Burke says that she looked around his room for a few seconds, kind of frantically saying like, my baby, my baby. And then Burke says after she left his room and shut the door, that he just laid in his bed awake. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I have an almost 11-year-old and a 12-year-old, and yes, even when they were 9 years old, they were nosy as hell. I just can't see a world where I wake them up by going into their room and searching for something in a panicked and frantic and freaked out voice saying, my baby, my baby, and them not A, asking me what's going on or what's wrong, or B, them getting out of their bed and following me around the house asking, What happened, Mama? What's wrong? What are you looking for? Why are you upset? What happened? But, still, Burke claims that that's what he did, that he just laid in bed awake while all this commotion was going on downstairs and inside of the house. And something else that I noticed during this Dr. Phil interview with John and Burke Ramsey is that Burke says it in almost every interview, even the ones when he was a kid. He says that he was awake, but he just stayed in bed while everyone else in the house ran around and the house was in full-blown panic mode. But when Dr. Phil asked John Ramsey during this same interview that he was doing with Burke, he asked John if Burke was ever out of his room before they claimed. And John says that he and Patsy had already checked on Burke and that Burke was in his room sleeping. So the problem with that is that Burke himself said that he wasn't asleep, that he was just laying in bed awake. But John and Patsy are both very, very adamant that he was asleep in bed and not that he did not get up. So, was he awake or asleep during all this? Because I'm still confused. So, then Dr. Phil brings up the fact that a police officer with a flashlight even came into Burke's room a short time after Patsy did. And yet, Burke still didn't get up and ask, like, what is happening? 
Why is everyone coming in, looking around my room, and then leaving without saying anything? But Burke explains that he's not big on worrying. That he was probably, and that he thinks that he probably just felt safer in his bedroom and in his bed. So, I guess. So, I mean, whatever you say, kid. Well, after this, it kind of cuts to John Ramsey and Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil brings up Detective Linda Arndt. And Dr. Phil asked John if he knew or could tell that Linda Arndt thought he was one of the ones responsible for what happened to John Bonet. And John explains that Linda had said on national TV that he was cordial. That he had just been casually going through mail while John Bonet was missing. And John's like, hell no, I was going through the mail to see if there was something else that had been left behind from the kidnappers. And as far as being cordial goes, I called her for help as a police officer and she just didn't know how to handle the situation because she had never been in or dealt with a situation like that before. So that could explain why Linda Arndt just let everybody walk around all over a potential crime scene because she'd never handled a case like this before. And I feel like looking through the mail and around the house for anything else that might have been left by a kidnapper is probably what most of us would be doing instead of just sitting idly by. So from here, Dr. Phil started asking John Ramsey about why he decided to search the basement level of the house first instead of going quote-unquote top to bottom. And John's logic actually makes perfect sense. If someone is trying to get into your house undetected, then the basement level entrance is going to be their best option. So this at least does explain why Linda Arndt swears that she told John and Fleet to search the house top to bottom, and then why John started in the basement instead. Because if you were trying to get in undetected, you would most definitely go to the bottom lowest level of the house, especially if you knew that the parents slept on the very top level of the house. That would be the furthest away from your potential threat. You don't want to get caught by the parents who were adults. So then they get into finding John Bonet's body in the basement. And again, John Ramsey makes another pretty valid point as far as the reason he moved John Bonet's body after he found her. John says that in his mind, he was taking John Bonet upstairs to where there were police officers. So in his mind, he was taking her to where help was. Which he says that's probably why he moved her subconsciously. And it makes sense. You would take her to where help is. If help's upstairs in the living room, then that's where you would take her. And then we get to the part of the interview where Dr. Phil is asking John Ramsey about how Linda Arndt supposedly shared this long look in the eyes with John after John Bonet's body was found in the basement. Remember how Linda Arndt was like, oh, our eyes met and I worried whether or not all of us were going to make it out alive. Yeah, that look. But John doesn't really say much about this, just like it's kind of ludicrous. That she was never in the presence of a murderer when she was around him, and that's basically it. I was kind of hoping he would elaborate on that more, but then again, that's like what I was saying about this look before. Linda Arndt didn't speak a word about this look or fearing for her life until years later. So it's probably something that was made up by her to make the story sound better. Allegedly, and in my opinion. <laughs> and then, remember last week when we were kind of talking about how the Ramseys went on CNN and did an interview telling America to keep their babies close because there was a killer on the loose. And then almost immediately afterwards, the police released a statement saying that there was no random killer on the loose and that everybody could rest safe. 
Okay, and then remember how I was saying that it seemed like the police were telling the public, like, we're telling you not to worry and not to panic about your own kids because we know who did this and we just have to prove it. So there was a lady on the part two interview with Dr. Phil and Burke Ramsey and she said something that I've never thought of before or I guess I've never thought about it in the way that she pointed it out. Because she said that she thinks that America pointed to the Ramseys and believed that they had to somehow be involved because that was easier for them to rest at night thinking that John and Patsy killed John Bonet than it would have been to think that some random person is just out there breaking into people's houses and murdering their kids. And after hearing it from that perspective, I think she might be right. That would be a lot easier pill to swallow to think that the parents just wigged out, killed the kid, tried to cover it up. Versus maybe we go to bed and somebody kills our kid and we don't know it until we wake up. Yeah, one's a lot easier to to swallow than the other. Now, Burke and Dr. Phil start talking about theories of what the public and people online say about this case and about how many similarities there are in the ransom note to Patsy's own handwriting. And I'll just say this. Patsy gave multiple, multiple, multiple handwriting samples to the police to use to match up with the ransom note. And I want to just list a few things that were found when a profiler was brought in to determine similarities and differences between the ransom note and Patsy's own handwriting. And I think what this profiler found is one of the biggest reasons that people believe that Patsy Ramsey wrote this ransom note, allegedly of course. The profiler found that the author of this ransom note was said to be someone of high writing ability which would make sense if Patsy wrote the ransom note because Patsy literally went to school for journalism. The profiler also said that the author of the note was likely a female and was likely someone over the age of like 25 or 30 and that the writer would have spoken English as their first language. And again, Patsy checks all those boxes so far. There were also over 200 similarities when the handwritten ransom note and Patsy's handwriting were evaluated by handwriting analysis. If you were to look at Patsy's natural handwriting side by side with the ransom note, they do look very, very, very similar, allegedly. And all of this makes me allegedly, supposedly, maybe, probably think that the author of the ransom note could have been Patsy. I just can't figure out why anyone in the house would write a ransom note like this. Now, if Patsy wrote the ransom note, then why? Because if she wrote the note, then she either is the murderer or she helped cover up a murder. And really, the only theory that people come up with with Patsy is that she flew into a fit of rage when John Bonet went to bed and that she possibly threw or slammed John Bonet into something and maybe panicked and thought that she'd really hurt her. Like, maybe she threw into a sink or a tub and she hit her head. And then the theory goes that Patsy took a possibly unconscious John Bonet downstairs into the basement where Patsy would have staged a whole-ass sex crime on her tiny six-year-old daughter and then had to make a garrote to strangle John Bonet with until she passed away. I just don't see it. I just cannot get behind this theory for two reasons and two reasons alone. First off, it takes a real sick person to sexually assault their own kid just to cover up an accident. I don't see somebody taking it that far. I just don't. Secondly, John Bonet was put in bed with white long john style pants and underwear on. And when her body was found, you could clearly see, you know, a urine stain. 
but your body does that naturally when you die. So there's no way to know if that was she with the bed or if her body just released all of its liquids and chemicals and toxins after she passed away. Now, after this, Dr. Phil asked Burke what he thought about the ransom note, like asking Burke if he thought that it was the same handwriting that looked like his mom's handwriting. And Burke tells Dr. Phil that he's only ever seen or read small snippets of the ransom note, that he's never actually sat down and read and looked at the entire ransom note. So Dr. Phil brings a whole copy of this ransom note out to Burke. And he asked him to look at the handwriting and let him know if the handwriting on the ransom note looked like his mom Patsy's handwriting. And Burke claims that the handwriting in the ransom note is way too sloppy for Patsy to have written it. And all I'm going to say on this is, that's not true. The two handwritings look so, so similar that it's kind of eerie. And then Dr. Phil switches the subject to talk about the 911 call. And again, like I said earlier... If Burke is saying he was awake and just in bed, and John is saying that Burke was in bed asleep, then maybe that is Burke on the end of the 911 call. But the more I listen to the end of that 911 call, and the more enhanced the audio gets, the more it sounds like an EVP, or essentially like radio static, with small snippets of maybe words in there. But Burke says that, no, he was not in the room when the 911 call was made, and that it was absolutely not him at the end of the 911 call. So after they discuss the 911 call a little bit, Dr. Phil moves on to asking Burke about the interview with the child psychologist 13 days after John Bonet's death. And right after Dr. Phil asked Burke if he remembered being talked to by a child psychologist, the screen flashes over to the Ramsey's lawyer. The Ramsey's family lawyer then said that since Burke had been staying at a friend or a family friend's house on and off after John Bonet's death, that the police kind of showed up at the friend's house one day while Burke was there and told these friends that John and Patsy had given the go-ahead to take Burke in to be interviewed by a child psychologist. Turns out, John and Patsy Ramsey didn't even know about this interview. They had no idea that it was happening until it was already over. That's some more sneaky shit that the police did that drove a wedge between them and their investigation and the cooperation of the Ramsey family. So this is just more shady shit like how they tried to hold John Bonet's body until John and Patsy agreed to be interviewed. But I did want to mention that because it's just another thing that kind of shows why the Ramseys stopped cooperating. But at the same time, I feel like it would have... But at the same time, I also feel like if this would have happened to a poor family or even an average middle-class blue-collar family, we wouldn't have had a choice but to be interviewed. I'm not sure how money equals not following the same set of rules as the rest of us have to live by, but hey, welcome to America, right? (laughs) So Dr. Phil actually does play some of the clips from the interview when... um, So Dr. Phil does play some of the clips from the interview with Burke 13 days after JonBenet was killed... And he and Burke kind of watch them together and talk about them. And this is the point where Burke starts kind of explaining his thought process as a nine-year-old kid being asked these questions. And he even explains how he interpreted some of these questions that he was being asked. So first they watch the clip of Burke being asked to draw a picture of his family. And as we already know, he only drew himself John and Patsy. He didn't draw John Bonet. And he even says to Dr. Phil, when he's asked about this, Burke says like, yeah, but she wasn't here anymore, so I didn't draw her. 
And that's kind of what I touched on last week. He's nine. He's thinking about these questions that he's being asked in the same way that if he were at school, he would be answering a question from a teacher. She asked him to draw a picture of his family, and that's what he did. Child logic is so simple, and we as adults are the ones that try to, you know, overcomplicate it. And then after they talk about the family picture that Burke drew, Dr. Phil plays another clip of Burke talking about John Bonet being murdered, and it's the clip where the child psychologist asks Burke what he thinks happened. This is the part where he's kind of like swinging his hand in a stabbing motion, holding a pretend knife or hammer. And Burke says that since he was nine years old at the time, that he just assumed that everyone knew that John Bonet had died, and that when she kept pressing him further and further on what he thought happened, he just took a few guesses. <laughs> and I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Kids will make up something if they do not know the answer, especially in a situation like this, where he feels like the psychologist is a person of authority. She's asking him a question, and he needs to figure out how to answer it. If he doesn't have an answer, he'll make one up. All kids will. So after they watch those old interview clips, Dr. Phil pulls up the next interview that was done with Burke in 1998, almost two years after JonBenet was murdered. And Dr. Phil brings up the pineapple and the flashlight and the baseball bat that was found at the house. And I don't even know if I mentioned the baseball bat, just because I know that it was Burke's ball bat, so of course it would have been at the house. But I guess what medical examiners were trying to say is that a skull fracture could have come from the flashlight or a ball bat. But Burke does say during this interview with Dr. Phil that he did typically leave his ball bat outside on the patio, so it would have been possible for an intruder to pick up the ball bat and bring it inside the house with them. And then all they'd have to do is leave the ball bat there when they were done with their deed. Burke says he doesn't remember if he and John Bonet ate pineapple together on the day that she was killed, and again, this would have been a good reason for police to play nice with the Ramseys and maybe, just maybe, they would have been able to interview everybody in the Ramsey house within a reasonable amount of time. But that didn't happen. So here we are, almost 30 years later, with still absolutely no answers. Now after this, Dr. Phil goes all Dr. Phil on Burke, because you know Dr. Phil, he's a pretty blunt man. He flat out asked Burke if he hit John Bonet over the head with a flashlight or a ball bat on the night that she was killed. And of course, Burke says no. But damn it, Burke is smirking and smiling throughout this entire interview with Dr. Phil, and I think that's one of the biggest things that gets to people about Burke. As I was re-watching this interview with Burke that he did with Dr. Phil, it made me think of one person that I know, and I won't name that person because, duh, but this person is so damn smart that they graduated when they were like 13 or 14 years old, it was something crazy stupid young. And then they ended up working for some super secret, like, federal agency that works with computer security on a federal level. I don't know. It's like an insane job. She can't even talk about it. But what made me think of this person is the fact that they've always seemed a little bit off to me. Just weird. And the longer I was around this person, the more I started to realize that they weren't weird at all. They were actually just so smart that they seemed weird and dumbed down to us. I don't really know how to explain it, but it's almost like they were so smart that the rest of the world thinks that they're, like, dumb. Like, you would think by talking to them that they have, like, a learning disability or some kind of diagnosis, but they don't. They just have a ridiculously high IQ. And I'm almost wondering if that's what maybe is going on with Burke, because he is ridiculously smart. 
And I don't want to say that somebody's like so smart that they're dumb because that's rude as hell. But I really can't think of another way to word it to where it makes sense. But regardless of all of that, it made me seriously wonder what Burke's IQ is. And even if his IQ's not incredibly off the charts, it could just be that he's made sure to keep himself so private and so far away from people in the media and the public that he doesn't have a lot of interaction with people outside of his own family. I don't know, this is me doing a lot of guessing on my part right now. <laughs> don't come for me. So Dr. Phil asked Burke if he hit John Bonet with anything like a flashlight or a hammer. And he moves on to talk about the stun gun marks that were found on John Bonet's body. And he mentions that there's a theory out there that maybe these two marks aren't even from a stun gun or a taser. But maybe they're from the end of a toy train set, like the kind of set where each piece of the track pops together. Because remember, the Ramseys had an entire room in their basement that they called the train room. And that room just held all of Burke's toy trains and tracks. And I think for me personally, this theory that the two marks could have come from a train track set piece only helps if you're in the Burke did it camp. So Dr. Phil asked Burke if he ever hit or hurt John Bonet with his train sets, and of course Burke says no. Then Dr. Phil says that experts who have examined John Bonet's body believe that she was possibly sexually assaulted. Dr. Phil goes all Dr. Phil again, and he asks Burke if he knew or thought that John Bonet had been sexually assaulted in any way, and again, Burke says no. Dr. Phil just says, and I quote, Let me ask you this straight up. Did you ever sexually abuse John Bonet? And again, Burke answers and says, absolutely not. And again, he's smirking and kind of half grinning, even through these harder questions, it's the last couple of questions that Dr. Phil was asking. And this smirk and grin throughout this entire interview actually got so much attention that Dr. Phil had to start out the third part of this series by addressing the smile and the smirk and the grin that was always on Burke's face. Dr. Phil actually said, quote, This is anxiety. He's socially uncomfortable. I've seen it a lot. He's not autistic. He's not weird. He's not creepy. He's just nervous. And y'all, I think that's about all I have time for this week. But next week, we're going to finally get into the theories, and that will probably be the last episode that I do on this case. And I wanted to mention it here because I'm really excited to talk about it next week, but I had a listener email me with a theory that I've never heard of or seen at all. But once she laid this theory out, it makes perfect sense. You may not agree, but I'm going to give you all the facts. I'm going to send you everything I'm bringing receipts. I'm, I'm going to bring you everything she brought to me, piece by piece by piece. And then we're going to try to rule out every other suspect and why these theories either do or don't work with the facts of this case. But for now, let's wrap this up, do a review of the week, so I can go get my crotch goblins. And while we're on the topic of review of the week, don't forget to go leave me one. If you've listened to three episodes and you like what you hear, just go rate it somewhere. Doesn't have to be a review. Just hit a star. One star, five stars, three stars, whatever you think it deserves. But preferably five stars if you if you must, you know? Okay. So this review's five stars and it comes from Linda Lou, 1023. It says, best podcast ever, five stars. The rest of it says, I enjoy every show I've listened to. I also follow you on all platforms. I just can't get enough. I just can't get enough of you, girl. 
You have a wonderful way of telling stories, even the ones I knew everything about. Thank you so much. That was so nice. So, and that's that on that. Let's do it again. Same time, same place, next Wednesday. See you then. That's how my mama murdered a podcast.